Paul's arguments concerning the resurrection where he asks the hypothetical question, well, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What's the big deal whether he did or he didn't? And he makes it really clear that we're sunk if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We have no faith. He has no message. He'd be a phony. We have no hope. We have no way to comfort ourselves when our loved ones have died. And so he makes it clear that resurrection's a big deal. But now, in verse 20, he begins by saying, but now Christ is risen from the dead. So he says, forget the hypothetical. The truth is Jesus did rise from the dead. He had already proven that earlier in the chapter when he talked about all the witnesses to the resurrection. And as we discussed, there's just no way to explain why people would, that many people would say they saw Jesus after he died, saw him alive, and then would give their lives and die for that truth. There's no explanation other than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But now he begins to talk about the implications of the resurrection and a, a bit deeper discussion of what it's all about in the overall perspective of history. And in these next verses, verse 20 through verse 28, he covers a huge amount of ground theologically, some really deep and important doctrinal truths, because he is discussing basically from the, the moment that time was created and man was created all the way until it's all wrapped up at the end and what it means for Jesus to be the Lord of all that. And he also talks about the nature of resurrection, how in the fall, what we call the fall, in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned, how that messed everything up, and we've all been messed up ever since, but someday that's going to be fixed, and what's wrong with us will be made right. And he connects that specifically, our restoration and our resurrection, with the resurrection of Jesus. You also, in the process, get some amazing thoughts concerning the nature of the Godhead, the nature of the Trinity, and the fact that there are roles that the members of the Godhead play, and there's a time when some of those roles will change. Some amazing stuff, really, as we look into it. It's, it has the potential to be really difficult, but hopefully we're going to look through it and see, I think I get it. This is, this is making sense, because that's why God gives us his word, not so that we can make it all complicated, but so that we can look at it and say, okay, I don't get it all, but boy, God's telling me some things that actually relate to me and are important to me. Let's go ahead and look at it, beginning with verse 20. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, which was just a euphemism for those who have died. For since by man came death... By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ that is coming. We better just stop there. <laughs> That's the end of kind of his first summary of thought. Now, God created 
the universe and gave the world to the pinnacle of his creation, which was man. When man was created as a perfect being, he was given the responsibility to superintend over the earth, to maintain the earth, to be involved in preserving the earth, and so on. Adam had that job. Now, because he violated what God had told him to do, and he and his wife ate of the tree that they were forbidden to eat, we know somehow that messed us up, that messed up people. And so that much we know clearly if we just read the Genesis account, if we just read Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we can see that. But how do we make sense of that, and how do we understand that? You know, when you look at the human body, when you look at human potential, you can't help but recognize that something's wrong with it, but that it's really amazing. Sometimes I'm amazed at how frail my body is. But other times I see people who have a, the same basic type of body that I have, and they can do things that I can't do. I see people who have a brain that's constructed the same as mine, and yet theirs seems to work so much better than mine does. You, you see, you know, they say that the average person uses, oh, 8 to 10% of their brain capacity, and most of our brains lie dormant. Now, just from my experience with people, I'm pretty sure that percentages vary somewhat person to person. But... <laughs> Our, our, brain, our bodies were actually designed in an amazing way. In fact, when you look at the design of our body, basically, there's really no reason why we should ever die. There's no reason why our bodies should ever wear out. You can tell when you look at the design that they were made to be self-replicating. You know, every cell of our body dies and another new cell is created. And so our body that we have now has no physical relationship to the body that we had seven years ago. And it, because, and the, the software that, that runs the whole thing, which as far as we know is coming from the coding in the DNA, that's the program that causes our body to continue to be replicated. So if our bodies can be replicated, why do they wear out? Why do we get old? Well, there's something wrong in our DNA, and it probably is something that happened in Adam. When he fell, it must have made some sort of biological change in the gene pool by which we all inherited a genetic makeup that is somehow flawed. There are pieces missing. Now, there are some people who can do things that are amazing. And over time, you see, wow, people can run faster and jump higher and do things more. Boy, all you have to do is watch the NBA and realize, watch the old tapes of the great players and watch the players today, and you go, how is this even physically possible? I was watching the Lakers the other day, and I like playing basketball, but I'm not very good at it. But I was watching Kobe Bryant. He takes the ball out at the, outside the top of the key, Two guys converge on him, 
And he forces up a really weird shot where he twists his body, spins it around in the air, and throws the ball off the backboard, 10 feet up in the air, 12 feet up in the air. And as the ball bounces off the backboard, Kobe is there already in the air, catches the ball with one hand and just slams it into the rim. And I look at that and I go, is that humanly possible? (laughs) Could that even be? Well, if it wasn't for our genetic damage, I think we'd all be able to do that and much more amazingly. When you look at the mind, what's the mind capable of? Some people can learn vast amounts of data, others learn less. But do any of us even think that we've begun to tap the surface of what the mind is capable of? Because there, every once in a while, something leaks through. Some phenomenon comes about and you go, whoa, how could that happen? And people usually explain some of these things by some goofy, new age, weird sort of things, but it's in the design of the body. For instance, the connection that there is between twins. How can you really explain that? Just because you were born together. There are things that I read recently about a, some twin brothers who were, they were separate from each other. One of them ended up being taken to the hospital violently ill. The other one had no idea, but he became violently ill, and he just knew that something was wrong with his brother. And so he got in his car, and he started racing to the hospital as the ambulance is taking his brother to the hospital. And on his way to the hospital, he felt excruciating pain in his throat. Right at the moment that they were ramming a a tube down his brother's throat in order to pump his stomach. Now, how do you explain that? There's some way in which through brain waves or some connection whereby people, every once in a while, something happens like that. Helene was telling me this morning about a time when she had, there were some twins who w- were both taken to the hospital, and one was in one hospital and one was the other, and she was working on the one at her hospital. She's a nurse, and, and the, all of a sudden, the baby just began crying and, and, and just in agony, and they couldn't find anything wrong with the baby, and Helene called the other hospital, and its twin had just died. And you go, how in the world... Does that happen? I don't know. I'm not going to give you some Oprah explanation for it. And, I, and it doesn't make me superstitious. It just makes me go, you know what? These bodies were designed with much more of a capacity than what we sometimes see or what we sometimes experience. And it makes me wonder, what was it like for Adam and Eve? What were their capabilities? See, when I see Jesus in his glorified, when in his new body after he died and rose from the dead, he could walk through walls. I have no reason to believe that they couldn't perhaps teleport themselves other places and things like that. You know, when you talk about these kinds of connections and the Bible says, when we're in heaven, we will know even as we are known. Something, some switch gets flipped that makes our bodies come back to the way that they were originally designed to function. And so, as he's talking about this whole thing of, okay, Adam was responsible for sin to come into the world. What Adam did 
did incredible damage. Now, it may be that the fruit that was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was some fruit that had the capacity biologically to do genetic damage to a person. It may be the tree of life was something that if you kept eating it, your body would keep replicating itself forever. But in that genetically flawed state, it would have been sad for them to go on and on and live in that way. And so God lovingly protected them from that tree and took them out of the garden as a result. I know this might sound far-fetched, but this is best we can piece together. But here's the thing, and the point that Paul's making here. In the same way that in history, Adam did something that messed up and warped our humanity, that caused some perhaps genetic switch to be flipped to where we are heading toward deterioration and death, in the same way, something happened when Jesus rose from the dead, whereby there's a new start. There's a chance for our bodies to be redeemed and fixed. And through our spiritual connection with Jesus Christ, that one day, as he promised he would, he will allow our spiritual rebirth to result in genetic repair to what our body was and Presto, changeo, our bodies become what they were designed to be before Adam messed things up. Are you with me so far? At least some of you are. Okay. So, since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Well, what does that mean? Remember, because the world was given to man... They, man had responsibility over it. And there's no telling what the world would be like if we still had our same mind and body that we had, that we would have had then, that we will have in heaven. We probably could have preserved this creation. There are probably some simple things we could have done that could have made the world stay in its idyllic state that it was in. I mean, we had that responsibility. But because man took that delegated responsibility and squandered it away and really let Satan have control of man, it still belongs to man. But Jesus, as, as Paul later on calls him the, the last Adam, the first Adam was Adam, the last Adam was Jesus. You can see that in verse 45 of this chapter. But he, as a man, finally there's a perfect man who could defeat death, who could take possession of the earth, and who could fix everything that we messed up. And so Paul's saying, this is really important to understand this, that as Adam started the ball moving in the wrong direction, it took another man. And that's why Jesus became a man, because man owned the place. But only a perfect man could fix the place, and when Jesus resurrected, remember before Jesus died, his body was like ours. He never sinned, and yet his body was damaged genetically. It's why when they hit him, he bled. It's why when they stabbed him, he died. Because his body was like ours. He took upon himself mortal flesh. But when he rose from the dead, in conquering death, the, the switches were all flipped so that now he could come back in a body that worked like no one else's, in a body that would allow him to float up into the air. 
anybody that will allow him to walk into a room without opening the door. And by our connection to him, he is able to one day do that for us through resurrection, through restoration, whatever switches he's able to flip, he's able to change our body into that kind of a body as well. And so again, Paul says, since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to make everyone alive, because in verse 23 it says, each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So the resurrection happens to those who are born again spiritually, to those who are now in spiritual relationship to God. And so as a result of Jesus' resurrection, now we also can participate in a resurrection. Now, the whole concept of original sin, how are we guilty because of Adam, is a problematic one theologically, and people argue about it all the time. The question comes up, am I, do I sin because I'm a sinner, or am I a sinner because I sin? In other words, did I inherit Adam's sin, and that's why I sin myself? Or do I just sin, choose to sin myself, and therefore that makes me a sinner? You could argue about it all you want. It's, it's perhaps that both are true. But the good thing is, every one of us has sinned plenty on our own. So Adam, the guilt that we have from Adam that we inherited, I personally think it's probably just our damaged genetic makeup. But if somehow we are guilty because we're related to him, it doesn't matter. I've chipped in enough on my own. I've done much worse than eating the wrong fruit. And I uh, hardly eat vegetables at all. And, you know, so basically we're all sinners. We all, like Adam, choose to do that. If you want to read more about that, Romans chapter 5, Paul does a lengthy discussion in a parallel passage where he starts out by saying, as through one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And so he there in Romans 5 lays out more the spiritual side of what it means to inherit that sinful nature. But he here in 1 Corinthians 15 is dealing a bit more on the physical side and saying the only one who has a right to redeem the world is going to do it. And in the process, if you're related to him, you will inherit his genetic therapy and that will allow your body to one day function the way it's supposed to. Now, when we talk about the resurrection of the body or bodily resurrection, again, we'll, we probably have more questions than answers when it comes to that. And there is a problem because, for one thing, resurrection is a body being fixed. That's what it is. Now, what about people who are cremated? How will they be resurrected? What about people who are dismembered or maybe you know, you die, but you donate your heart to somebody else. How in the world is God going to untangle all that? Well, remember, for him to resurrect your body, even for us to, to have the, the plan of your body, all it takes is one cell of the body that has the, your DNA that comprises who you are, and that's contained in every cell of your body. But even more than that, 
your DNA, which is basically the software that makes you run, your DNA is all that's necessary for you to be re-put together. And your DNA is in his mind. He knows the code. He wrote the program. And that's why he could choose you before the foundation of the world, because he had your genetics in his head. I hope I'm not losing you on this. But <laughs> anyway, he can put together a perfect version of you. It's not that he takes your spirit and plops it in a new body. It's that literally he turns your who you are and then fixes that genetic damage that you inherited by being born a child of Adam. And you couldn't have fixed it yourself because you're a sinner. But because he isn't a sinner and because he rose from the dead, now he is able to give spiritual life to you, which happened when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, and your spirit has been regenerated already. And that's what we call being born again. But that's only half the package. Because you know, when you're born again, all of a sudden you want different things. When you've been born of God, you really desire fellowship with God and fellowship with his people, and you really want to do what's right. But why is it that we don't so often? Our body's still in the way. We're dealing with a flawed physicality that our new, newly born spirit is not able to overcome. But when we die... And finally, that damaged physicality is deteriorating and put in the ground. Then Jesus Christ can restore it, put it back together, and it's the same you, but a much better version, the version of you that you would have been had you not sinned and Adam not sinned. Now, when is that going to happen is another problem. Because he talks about it happening at his coming. You know, and yet, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, there are some people who read scriptures about the resurrection, and they say, it's clear that it happens at the second coming. They'll even look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and say, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So they go, it happens right before the rapture. And so then you have to go, but wait a minute, if to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but our resurrection doesn't happen, and happen later. How does that work? There are some people who believe in what's called soul sleep, where they think when you die, you just hibernate spiritually. And then at the resurrection in the future, you're, you're brought back to life, you're resurrected, you're fixed, then you're the way you're supposed to be. The problem is, the scripture says, you're going to be with him immediately. Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So, and the Old Testament saints, according to Jesus, went to a place, Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort where they were aware. Moses and Elijah showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration in what appear to be glorified bodies. So I can't buy soul sleep. Now, there are some people who would say, well, then you go to be with the Lord, but you're just kind of a floating spirit in heaven. And then later, you'll get your body, and oh, finally, now, yeah, feels good. <laughs> but Paul in 2 Corinthians also talks about he's not longing to be a disembodied spirit, but he's longing to be clothed upon to have that new body. So I have a problem with that. Most conservative Christian theologians postulate, and the Bible doesn't ever say this, but they think probably what happens is when we die, we get a temporary body, and kind of a loner, 
and until the real one's ready, you know, and then at the resurrection we get the real one. Could be, but the Bible doesn't say it. Another possibility, and the direction that I personally lean, is that when we go to heaven, we're passing from time into eternity. If that's the case, then what's happening in the resurrection is that if I die today, I believe that that's my resurrection. Now notice, as he says in verse 23, Christ is the first fruit, but each one is resurrected in his own order. That makes it sound like the second resurrection isn't necessarily an historic event, but it could easily be a progressive event. Whereas people that died 500 years ago in Christ, their resurrection was as soon as they were absent from the body, they were present with the Lord, their body was resurrected. When it happens to me, that's my turn. It's my order. If you live a lot longer than I do, that's your order. If we live until the rapture, then that becomes our resurrection at that point. See, when 1 Thessalonians 4 says the dead in Christ will rise first, it doesn't mean necessarily they're going to rise at that point. It means they're going to rise before the people who are raptured. So it could be any time before. Therefore, it could be a progressive resurrection. Now, Another thing to really, I realize how fast I'm talking, by the way, sorry about that. But, you know, the time clock is clicking down. But if we go from time into eternity when we die, it might be that if I died today, I would get there and you guys are all there too at the same time. Because it's, you know, it's something that we can't really fathom, the whole time-space continuum. Marty McFly helps, but for, you know... <laughs> It's like, who knows? We're, we, if, if we know now that time is a physical property, as is space, it's a dimension, and so it could be that the resurrection happens in the future as far as earth is concerned, but as far as eternity, that we go and we're all there and it's all over. So um, regardless, his point is Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that he could fix what's wrong with you so that he could allow you to be raised from the dead as well. And when you think of it in terms of how the damage was done by Adam, and again, even as verse 45 says, and so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Then it all makes sense. How hard was it for one guy to affect all of us by his sin? It's easy since we are all his offspring. So it's easy to understand how that was allowed to propagate, and we certainly contributed enough of our own misery as well. So if damage can be done with the flip of a switch, or with a taste of fruit, or with a decision that is made, then why should we think it so odd that that could also be rectified in the same way by someone who has the power to flip that switch back? by someone who proves that he's defeated death, and now he says, now I will allow you to be my relatives. I allow your spirit to be born. And that affecting, after we've died and death is over with for us, and now that resurrection switch gets flipped, and now we're just who we were designed to be. Everything that you can dream of that you might someday be able to do, you'll probably be able to do it. 
And time is an amazing thing. Moses and Elijah were there on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus even, as the first fruits, died and rose from the dead. How'd that happen? Again, some kind of wrinkle in time, probably. And we don't completely understand it. But so there's this promise that those who are Christ will rise at his coming. Now, beginning with verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Why is there authority and power and rule? Well, the only reason it's needed is because of our flawed characteristics that we've inherited. It's because of our sin. It's because of our damage that was caused by the fall that you even somebody needs to be in charge. Now, what happened because... Man has the right to rule the earth, was, was commanded to do it originally, but gave that up. It took a man to take it back and to win it over. It took someone who was human because that right had been delegated to a human. And so God the Son became the Son by being born, by taking upon himself human flesh, now being completely God and also completely human, he had the right to rule. The right that we all were given originally, but the right that we squander by sinning. So here the incarnation happened because we needed a man who could rule, who had the right to rule, but also the integrity, also the goodness to rule in a way that would repair the damage that we've done to the environment, to ourselves, to each other. And so, at the end, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Jesus will put an end to all rule and authority and power. The Father gave the Son, delegated to him, the right and responsibility to rule and reign, and to judge, and to get rid of everything that doesn't conform to him and to his plan. But all of that is temporary. All of that is a matter of time. And so the whole end of it is finally for Jesus to remove everything that's damaged, to conquer it all, and then not to rule it necessarily in the same way that you rule over someone who needs supervision. But at that point, he will then offer it back to the Father, back to the Godhead. I know that's hard to grasp, but but Jesus temporarily is a ruler over everything because a man had to take authority and fix what was wrong. And so he does that. So then we see, for he must reign, verse 25, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death itself. Even as later on in the chapter, down in in verse 54, he talks about death is swallowed up in victory. Finally, death itself will lose. Finally, damaged genetics will lose. Finally, built-in deterioration will be defeated. For, verse 27, he has put all things under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 8. And it's a It's a reference to Jesus, but it's also a passage that talks about the responsibility that God gave to man to rule over the earth. 
But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That's a little parenthesis whereby he's saying, now, of course, all things being put under him does not include God the Father being under him. Because God the Father is the one who delegated that responsibility to Jesus. So everything except God will be put under him, and he will do away with everything that's damaged. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So ultimately, when it all winds down, that distinction between the roles of the Father and the Son, the Son being delegated from the Father the right to mediatorial, you know, that is, acting in between to rule and reign over things that need help, that need fixing. Ultimately, after that is all conquered and every threat is done away with and death is now swallowed up in victory, then at that time, there's a a melding of the Godhead in a way that we can't completely understand, where once again, the roles are modified in some way, and God always being three persons forever. All three members of the Trinity were involved in creation even before the fall. And yet because of the fall, the son took on a unique role as a son. When it's all over with, he, he blends back in as he probably no doubt was before, before the fall. And now God is all in all. See, it's not even oh, now he's reigning with a rod of iron. No, it's all over. Now it's his kingdom in a way that it ought to be. No rule, no authority, no power, no politics. Finally, a beautiful unity whereby we know even as we are known, our bodies function the way they are designed. We are in perfect harmony with each other and with him. A glorious day indeed. And so Paul gives us this survey, and I hope I didn't lose many of you. But just in review, it started out, man messed things up. As a result, that damage continued until Jesus Christ rose from the dead and then said, I can fix what's wrong with you. And the day will come at the resurrection whenever that occurs for each of us. Some of us, it may be sooner than others. That restoration will happen. Our bodies that were fearfully and wonderfully made will now work the way they're supposed to. We will have skills and abilities that you can't even imagine. When I get to heaven, I'll meet you in the gym. Probably not, but, you know, it'll... And God is all in all. There's no competition anymore. No struggle, no threat. We will know even as we are known. Do you know what a... What an important concept that is, that finally, we don't have to pretend. Finally, it's not a threat. As Adam and Eve in the garden were naked and unashamed, so we will have nothing to hide. We will have nothing to argue about. We'll have nothing to disagree on. We will have no hassles, no limitations. God is all in all. We are his people. Glorious day, glorious time. And all of that was accomplished by the resurrection. The resurrection is so much more than just, yep, good, you know his death worked, so he rose from the dead. You know, bring out the Easter bunnies. It's, 
The resurrection is critical because it's in his resurrection that he reversed the genetic damage of the fall. And it's by our resurrection that he'll do the same for us. I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us this insight by sharing it with a brilliant guy like Paul and allowing him to write it down in a way that we can get some of it. Lord, we know that you're great as we sang, how great thou art. But Lord, we also realize that you intend to make us as great as you designed us. The day is going to come when you give us glorified bodies, when you are glorified perfectly in us, when we look at each other and don't see flaws, we will one day look at each other and see glory and majesty. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that realization. Thank you for rising from the dead in a way that it's undeniably historically true. Because we know that was the hard part. The rest is easy for you. And so God, help us to stay spiritually connected to you now, despite the frailty of our body. To even now be aware of where we really belong, of where our home ultimately lies. And do that work in us that prepares us for our bodies to be transformed and resurrected. Oh, we can't wait. And Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If there's anyone here today who, when it talks about everyone who is Christ's, will be raised from the dead, and you don't know what it is to belong to him, to be one of his, it's simply allowing him to be your Lord. It's simply saying, I want to sign up for that. I want to be your child. I want to one day inherit that bodily transformation 